From Mendocino County Public Broadcasting, this is a podcast of KZYX's local coronavirus update for Friday, October 16th, 2020. On Fridays, Alicia Bales talks with Mendocino County's public health officer, Dr. Andy Corrin, about the county's response to the pandemic and listeners call in with their questions. So here we are with our afternoon briefing with Dr. Andrew Corrin, the public health officer, and we're joined on Zoom by Becky Emery and Sarah Duquette with the executive office. Thank you all for taking the time this afternoon. Thank you. Okay, well, we are up to well over a thousand cases in the county, but you did share a few notes that were somewhat optimistic. including the fact that we look like we are moving in the direction to the red zone or the the less restrictive tier. So can you talk a little bit about what more it will take for us to move into the red zone and what we have to look forward to once we get there? Well, we're uh, getting over uh, three outbreaks that happened in mid-September that really set us back. And those are coming under good mitigation. Uh, so where we are now is we've had our first day where we can look back um, at a seven-day average seven days ago that's under seven. And so that is what we need to show for two weeks um, in order to become eligible for the red tier um, program. And, and what that means is that we'll then be able to open up uh, many industries that we haven't been able to do. So it'll be, you know, hair salons will be open indoor, personal care, places of worship, fitness centers, restaurants, schools, all will be with some restrictions. It's not completely opening up the economy, but it's a great step forward. And after a couple of weeks, schools will also be able to be open. So what we have to be doing is we have to be watching out um that we are continuing to use masks that we're social distancing we're doing our uh hygiene um and disinfecting where where we need to um we want to really avoid any gatherings of any size we can get together with our household units or cohorts uh which can be according to the new uh, shelter in place orders up to 12 people that you share household duties with on a regular basis and don't mix with other households. Um, gatherings is a is a big area of community spread, uh, but also just being out and about. If you're not wearing your masks or other people are not, um, then that's what happens. And so we want to avoid outbreaks. And the way we do it is um, we have the the classic uh, response, and we find a positive uh, COVID test of calling and uh, investigating where they've been and then tracing the people that they may have come in contact with and put everybody, um, you know, in isolation or quarantine uh, until the uh, infectious period of the virus has passed. Uh, So that's our contact investigation, contact tracing. And I would say that that's made possible if people are getting tested. So please come by and get tested at the, um, at the, um, OptumServe site that's now open from Sundays to Thursdays. So this Sunday it'll be open. We had a really good response there uh, last week. Um, And so that's for Ukiah and surrounding areas, but there are also uh, uh, event testing events on the coast. And, uh, you know, so wherever you are, it's important to look at where we have the testing available and get those tests 
because that's how we can find any cases that are floating around in the community and make sure that those cases don't turn into 2, 4, 8, 16, and so on and so forth. So that's what we need to be doing. And you also... Uh, oh, yeah, ahead. No, go ahead. Uh, you also touched on an industrial partnership. So testing with the vintners and the vineyards and the chambers of commerce and the lodging industry. And so can you talk a little bit more about when that's going to roll out and what that'll look like? Well, it's... Um, it's important that we, we understand we're in a rural community, a lot of spread out population, and a lot of our population, uh, you know, <clears throat> works out in the fields. Uh, they don't get time off. We don't have a large, um, you know, computerized workforce. And so um, coming into town or to other places to get tested is very difficult. So we have testing in the county at the fairgrounds. And the clinics are really taking on a fair share of uh, doing the, the uh, testing in their communities. But they can't go off-site as easily as we'd like to be able to do. And uh, so the lodging industry was the first ones that committed back in the uh, spring and summer uh, to pitch in some of their profits uh, to organize some on-site testing, meaning on their site, on the, you know, on the work site in their communities and for their employees. And uh, so we're just beginning to use that as a model to talk with the uh, uh, vintners and, uh, and agricultural uh, ranchers, uh, wine growers, and the chambers of commerce around town for restaurants and grocery stores. We're hoping to expand that decentralization of testing um, so that it's more widespread. It's more where people work, more where people live. Um, and so that will, again, give us more power to control any uh, positive cases or outbreaks that may be in the buds. When that will roll out, I can't tell you. We're, we're trying to do it as quickly as we can. We actually have some personnel that are available, and I think it will first uh, happen on the coast with the lodging industry. Uh, there was one, or there may still be one um, uh, uh, winery, but uh, vineyard. Uh, that's been that has done it in the past. Becky, do you remember the name of that uh, that group? Butcher, Butcher, or okay, can't can't raise it up to my mind right now. But somebody's already uh, started with that, and that and the and the uh, and the lodging industry are examples. And we think that a partnership in that regard is going to be a, a great uh, thing going forward for the our whole county. So I can't tell you when. Uh, hopefully in the next uh, couple of weeks we'll get our first ones off the ground and then after that some others to follow. Great. And I want to let our listeners know that we're going to open up the phone lines in a few minutes so you can ask your questions. And that phone number is 895-2448. And the last question is sort of a segue into the next question. I, I want to go back to the equity metric. And you mentioned that as a, a county with a smaller population, we won't be held to the same standards as counties with larger populations, but we'll have to indicate that we're working really hard to lower the case rates in certain communities, especially the Latinx community. But will we have to prove that our efforts are having any effect or, or paying off in any way? Well, there, there are two um, major areas that the state has addressed the uh, problems of small counties. And one is we're small. 
So as we move forward on the tiers, we don't want to have to flip back um, to a, a last. So if we move forward to red, we don't want to have to go to purple and close everything down with just a few extra cases. And that's very important because when you look at percentages, you know, a few cases could make the difference in the percentage of uh, cases that we have and flip us back to where we have to close everything down. So we, so the metric is designed to move forward, uh, but to move backwards with more difficulty. In other words, we don't have to achieve the same numbers, but where there still is possible to move back. So that's the small county uh, metric. The other thing is, is that our um, percent of test positivity uh, is not measured and um, doesn't adjust our case positivity rate. Then finally, for the um, disparities between our populations, the Latinx community first comes to mind because they are three times more affected by this than the rest of the population, um, is that we have to uh, show that we are targeting investments uh, toward activities that especially are working on the disparities with those populations to bring uh, the COVID numbers down. And we have been doing that. We've been doing that here in Mendocino County since since the springtime, uh, meeting and actively working with uh, our Latinx community uh, and various other non-profit uh, non uh, partners. And maybe this question is more for Sarah or Becky, but is there a, um, an overview of how uh, COVID has affected the Hispanic or Latinx community throughout the, the course of the pandemic. It, you said it was today it's 62%. Is that, how, how does that look in terms of how it's been from the beginning? Well, I can, I can start. I mean, I, I think that we know that the Hispanic community uh, has been a large majority of our essential workers the field workers, the uh, people who are making and serving our food, maintaining our places of business, uh, and in the lodging industry, the same. And, you know, the reason that they uh, have the disparities is because the social determinants of health care affect them more. They can't take off. They don't have the money, even if they could take off, to survive if they take off work. Uh, they're driving to and from places in carpools that put them at more exposure. They are already uh, in multi-generation uh, households, which are larger, that make them more susceptible uh, to transmission when they get it. So then they become ill, and uh, the the sole um, you know uh, uh, wage earner in in the home. Uh, can't work, and they're subjected to some very, very severe uh, conditions. They may lose their job. Now, the uh, government has protected them from some uh, loss of uh, uh, housing, uh, but they'll still have to pay back mortgages if they have them or rent. And um, they're, you know, they're some of them are lucky enough to have unemployment insurance. Uh, some of the employers are continuing to pay them. Uh, if they're off on isolation or quarantine. Uh, but large numbers of the population in the Hispanic community have been subjected to isolation and quarantine orders in order to protect themselves and their family and the rest of the community. All right. Well, we've got a call. Um, 
Let's go ahead and, and take a, a caller question. Great. Caller, you're live on the air. Do you have a question for Dr. Andrew Corrin? Yes. All right, go for it. Hello. Hi, I'm calling about a um, mask issue. In my local grocery store, uh, one of their workers wears a only a face shield, a splatter shield, we call them in the hospital. And I was wondering two questions. One, how does the county provide waivers for frontline staff members? This was a cashier with her hands all over my food, wearing only a face shield with no mask. And two, would you recommend that a person that had a waiver to wear a face shield only be front and center like a checker over all my food or maybe working in a more less public place in the grocery store? Um, you know, the county does not give waivers for differences uh, in, in what kind of facial shielding uh, that we recommend. We, we make recommendations everybody should wear a mask and uh, depending upon their exposure to the community, a shield would be a, another good way uh, to add to the mask. In some cases, people can't tolerate a mask for one reason or another. And for them, uh, it is permissible uh, to wear a face shield. Would I recommend that they're on first line? Well, we don't know that they actually have the illness, so we wouldn't want to discriminate against them um, if they're wearing a face shield instead of a face mask for a good reason. Um, but, you know, it, it, even wearing a mask has some risk associated with it, and wearing a shield is a little bit less effective in terms of protection than a mask. Wearing two of them together would be good, uh, but we, we can't have the maximum protection of everybody all the time. Now, if you think that somebody is wearing a shield and it's inappropriate, you could talk to uh, that person, talk to their manager, uh, and address it in that way. But it is not something that the county is going to uh, enforce if they're wearing some facial shield or mask. Well, you do have a new health order coming out tonight at 5 o'clock p.m. Can you go a little bit into the details of what will be in that order? Yeah, that's, a, that's an unusual order. Um, that has to do with gatherings. Uh, <clears throat> So the state has recently, in the last few days, released a uh, guidance about gatherings that would permit three households to gather together outside with, uh, you know, social distancing and masks and so on, but gathering together. And uh, I have written an order to not allow that. So counties are able to be a little bit more restrictive than are more restrictive than the state. Um, not less restrictive than the state. And um, we, uh, several weeks ago, I wrote the orders to simplify our shelter-in-place orders. Let me just uh, try and sign in here. Um, and so ordinarily, we would, um, we would be going to the gatherings. We would be allowing gatherings now. Um, but the order I wrote, said that we are specifically not allowing gatherings at this time. And I did it for a couple of reasons. The main reason is we're on the cusp 
of perhaps changing from the purple tier to the red tier, and I want us to succeed so we can open and not just open for a few days and then flop back. Um, so I don't want to see the gatherings um, cause a lot more illness in the community. It is a riskier, um, it's a riskier uh, um, activity to be in gatherings. And so I don't want to risk um, our all going back to purple, even if we do turn red, yet. Um, and the other thing is that our um, uh, home household unit is defined larger than many other counties and larger than it was before, where we usually had, we used to have only six people in a household unit. We expanded the household unit to 12 people. And that is not just the people who live under one roof. If it's, you know, if you do other daily activities uh, with another, with another group, either relatives or uh, neighbors or friends, but that's a consistent group that does the same sort of household activities together. Um, you can be up to 12 of those people and, you know, if you got together, that would be fine. Um, and I, so I felt that we should not allow gatherings in general to happen yet. So that was my order. And I first wrote to, to a guidance that we were allowing uh, um, gatherings. And then I said, oh, no, I sort of choked on that idea. And I said, no, we don't really want to do that now. We have, you know, maybe another week to go and, uh, and we could be really in a good place. So let's, let's hold on that. All right. Well, we've got another caller question. Let's go to that question. Caller, you're live on the air. What's your question for Dr. Andy Korn? Hi. Good afternoon. I wanted to find out if you identify super spreaders and uh, track them. Well, we identify people who have the illness. That becomes a case. And then we do case investigations. And then uh, from there, any of the people who they've come in contact with during their infectious period, we contact them and find out if there are other secondary you know, illnesses. If not, we call those people contacts and put them uh, in quarantine. The initial people who, are, who have the illness that are positive uh, for COVID, we put them in isolation. So, yes, if there was a super spreader, somebody who spread it to a lot of different places, we would, we would catch up with them. We but you were, saying, you were saying that um, you identify them by having the, the disease, but they, uh, they don't necessarily get the disease. That's why they're called super spreaders. They're, they test positive, but they show no signs. And so sure. they're the ones that are responsible for... Um, affecting most people. And so I, I think that they need to be identified and tracked. You're absolutely right. I, I may have misspoke. Uh, the people who have a positive COVID test are our cases, whether they are sick or not. And from them, we find out who they have been in contact with and we get them under quarantine, and we try to get them tested so we can control the spread. That's called mitigation. And we've done a good job of that in this community. We haven't had uh, what you would call super spreaders, uh, that we have large outbreaks that come from one person that we can identify. But we've had some outbreaks, and, um, and then that's the process that we identify um, people who are spreading it around. 
And that's why we push testing. Because there are people who do not have any symptoms. And yes, uh, those people do spread it around, and they spread it around to people who could get symptoms. But the only way we can tell is by testing, testing, testing. Well, you shared um, an update on the Ken Fowler outbreak, that it's under control and that you're in communication with some of the, the businesses and schools and, and other places where people might be likely to, to pick this up in large numbers. And I think we heard back when the Ken Fowler outbreak um, first became known that it was possibly because people were not wearing masks in break rooms while they were eating and they were in small, poorly ventilated areas to take their breaks. And I'm wondering if there's some new guidance on, on professional spaces where, where people take breaks or, or have meals together. Have there been any changes so that maybe um, this doesn't happen again? Well, it's the same guidance, and every business has um, read the guidance, and they attest that they understand the guidance, and they have uh, um, informed all of their employees and, and uh, looked at their own companies and have tried to make accommodations uh, to uh, ensure that they're following the guidance. Um, in this case, uh, they hadn't been. There were areas that we found that uh, employees were bunching together at lunch, which is when you're eating a very much more risky um, uh, time. But break rooms are commonly found to be the area of spread. Uh, then there were also some people who would be customers who came in and weren't ma wearing masks. And it was not, uh, the, the guidance was not well respected at that time. Once they had the outbreak, um, they, uh, all of the people that were involved were tested and many were uh, put in quarantine, several were isolated. Um, and they did a, a deep cleaning of their uh, facility uh, we actually walked around with them and uh, then a couple of weeks later did another check and they have shown a great deal of uh, interest in cooperating and they're much more vigilant now so it doesn't happen again. It is a lesson we hope that other industries and other companies will learn from because I'm sure it was very expensive uh, to Ken Fowler. Right. Um, so. We've got another caller question. Caller, you're live on the air. What's your question for Dr. Andy Corn? Hello, caller. That's you. Hello, caller. You're live on the air. Hi. Okay, I went to the chiropractor in Petaluma on Wednesday, just the other day. Uh, she was sitting at the front desk without a mask. When I got there, she did not take my temperature, did not ask me all those questions that people ask when you go to a health um, facility. And then when I went in the treatment room, she came in, she had the mask on, but her nose was uncovered. And when I commented nicely on that, like your mask has slipped down below your nose, she said, oh, it doesn't matter because I'm not coughing and sneezing. And I said, well, I understand that the viral load is in the nasal pharynx. Oh, no, it's not. She said, that's wrong. So I said, well, then why did they put the swab up your nose when they're doing a COVID test? Well, there was no answer to that, and she started it going on about some other doctors have come up with some other conclusions and blah, blah, and she's studying all that. 
I went ahead with the, I don't want to make this too long. I went ahead because I was in big pain. I'd driven an hour and a half already to get there. So um, there was no evidence in the room that any measures were taken. There was no air purifier in the room. The windows weren't open. No hand sanitizer. Caller, do you and have a I, question? Yeah, the question is, okay, she, how long I could possibly have got exposed? Because my face was in that face hole without any ventilation. How long should I wait before I go get a COVID test? Um, you know, you could get a test anytime, but five days would certainly be enough for the viruses to multiply and uh, be more likely to give us a true positive if you're positive and a true negative if you're negative. All right, we've got another question. Caller, you're live on the air. Yeah, hi. Um, I'm calling because I have a child who plays soccer, and um, currently they meet on the field, and they can. everyone has to have their own ball. Um, they can't pass the ball from person to person. They can't take a shot on a goal, even without a goalie. And I'm wondering when, um, I guess, why those restrictions are so, why it's so strict, and um, when we think they can lighten up. It seems like um, it's a pretty low risk passing a soccer ball using your feet. Um, I don't see any reason why they can't be taking shots on an empty goal um, and just increasing the sorts of things that they can do. Um, so, yeah, that's my question. So, you know, the rules are set by the, um, by the people who are organizing the event. And I can't answer why they wouldn't allow shooting into a goal if the same kid is picking it up and uh, it's one ball and one kid and they're staying apart. Uh, the concerns we have about soccer and kids' sports uh, is that it's hard to keep people apart, for one thing. Uh, and so kids, more than anybody else, bunch. And it's, if you watch soccer games, I'm sure you have, uh, they bunch a lot. And so, that, so that's the reason for no competition. Uh, but the other thing is when they're just running around or they're practicing skills, they're going to be breathing harder and they're going to be expressing uh, more air and more, um, <coughs> more um, droplets and potentially uh, uh, more infection. And the thing with kids is, they show their symptoms of a COVID much less than adults. There is a very small minority of kids who actually get sick. And when they get sick, it may not be a cough. It might be a tummy ache or it might be a little bit of fatigue. Um, and you wouldn't know it. And so then they would spread it to the next kid. And the next kid would spread it to the family. And someone living in the household is a grandparent. And somebody gets very sick. And so there are restrictions on that. And as we open up our communities and we know that the the uh, the passage of the uh, or the positivity rate in the community is very low. More activities <coughs> will be permitted, and some of those will be liberalizing the rules around uh, uh, kids' sports. But right now, that's where it's at, and the reason is so we protect the entire community. Okay. Well, it looks like we are right here at three thirty. Um, I guess we can take <coughs> one more call. Okay, caller, you are live on the air. 
Oh, sounds like we lost the caller. Hello, caller. Okay, well, we're then we'll end right on time. Um, I'm Sarah Wright, and we've been talking with Dr. Andy Corrin, the public health officer for Mendocino County. Thank you so much for taking the time on a beautiful Friday afternoon, and we'll look forward to your, your next order coming out at 5 o'clock about gatherings. So have a wonderful weekend. You've been listening to the local coronavirus update from KZYXNZ, Mendocino County Public Broadcasting in Philo, California. To hear this program live, tune in on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays at 3 p.m. Pacific Time to KZYX Philo, 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Williton Ukiah at 91.5 FM, and in Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. Or you can hear us anywhere at kzyx.org, where you can also find out how to donate or become a KZYX member. Thanks for listening.